From A Study of Silas Marner by H. A. Davidson The last thing I want to share with you is a beautiful summation of this novel's theme from an 1895 commentary. First, let me say that this commentary was meant as a guide for teachers and was included in a publication of the book. Please imagine, when you listen, what it would be like if schools today taught such novels and with such thoughtfulness. It is astonishing to consider how far we have moved from this sort of intellectual rigor and spiritual depth. This commentary begins with a poetic account of the necessity of an integrating theme in great art, and then illustrates how Silas Marner fulfills that standard. I could not have done this masterful a job on my own, so instead, I'm just going to be the messenger who brings it to you. Here's H.A. Davidson on Silas Marner. Every work of art, whether it be a statue, painting, poem, or novel, represents an artistic conception, the product of creative genius, for which, by every means, the author seeks adequate expression. The winged Hermes is a messenger. The Sistine Madonna shadows forth the artist's conception of the divinity consecrating the soul of the woman who had borne the Christ child. In all the artist's effort, one single purpose directs every choice— There exists in his mind an ideal, the soul of his conception, which is to him something holy and imperative. Color has no beauty except as it bodies forth in the eyes of men his vision. Words, characters, incidents are selected or rejected solely for the sake of their relation to his purpose, which thus shapes for itself a form of expression. In the poem or the novel, we call the artistic purpose which determines the choice of characters and the course of the action the theme or motif. In some works of fiction, the theme may be found in the introduction or upon the first page. In others, it may be inferred at an early stage from the trend of the narrative. A clue demanding the closest attention, leading, meantime, toward the author's arcanum. In Silas Marner, the theme is apparent from the beginning of the story. George Eliot, more often than other novelists, confides the secrets of her art to the discerning reader. Here and there, in all her novels, are lines which might have been taken from the working plans in her notebook, so clearly do they define the artistic conception in her mind. Sometimes, as in The Mill on the Floss, the statement of her theme is contained in a single, illuminating passage— In other books, it is found in different places in the narrative, in sentences so correspondent in meaning that there can be no mistake in the interpretation. The most complete statement in a single passage of the artistic purpose in Silas Marner is, however, found in a letter of the author to her publisher. George Eliot writes of this book, I don't wonder at your finding my story, as far as you have read it, rather somber but I hope you will not find it at all a sad story as a whole, since it sets, or is intended to set, in a strong light, the remedial influences of pure, natural human relations. I'll read that theme one more time. It sets, or is intended to set, in a strong light, 
the remedial influences of pure, natural human relations. Back to Davidson. Many passages in Silas Marner read like a commentary on this statement. The sentences which follow are of this kind, and indicate clearly the unfolding of the author's purpose. Davidson now quotes passages from Silas Marner that capture Eliot's theme. And when I read this, I was delighted to discover how many of them should sound familiar to you. Quote, The light of his faith quite put out, and his affections made desolate, he had clung with all the force of his nature to his work and his money. And like all objects to which a man devotes himself, they had fashioned him into correspondence with themselves. His loom, as he wrought in it without ceasing, had in its turn wrought on him, and confirmed more and more the monotonous craving for its monotonous response. His gold, as he hung over it and saw it grow, gathered his power of loving together into a hard isolation like its own. Unquote. Quote, Our consciousness rarely registers the beginning of a growth within us any more than without us. There have been many circulations of the sap before we detect the smallest sign of the bud. Unquote. Quote, the fountains of human love and of faith in a divine love had not yet been unlocked, and his soul was still the shrunken rivulet, with only this difference that this little groove of sand was blocked up, and it wandered confusedly against dark obstruction. Unquote. And, quote, a, my precious child, the blessing was mine. If you hadn't been sent to me, I should have gone to the grave in my misery. The money was taken away from me in time. Unquote. Now back to Davidson's commentary. In order to give literary expression to this theme, it was necessary that the author should select as the central figure of the story a person leading a barren and desolate life under the dominance of some vice or passion which shut out all good influences, a person without faith, without human affection. It was also necessary that the evil influence should have been imposed by circumstances upon a nature naturally possessed of good qualities and accustomed for a time to their exercise, in order that the remedial agency chosen might waken within the man some faint, well-nigh extinguished inclination to good. Only from within may a life attain the natural and wholesome soundness that George Eliot had in mind as her goal. Some remedial agency was, however, as necessary as is the light for the putting forth of the germ folded within the seed, and George Eliot chose a little child as the influence best calculated to excite again natural human emotions in this poor old man of narrowed mind and heart. With utmost care, she has prepared the reader to expect the effect of the child's entrance. The miser had once a little sister, tenderly loved, and when he saw the child sleeping on his hearth, there stirred in his confused mind a hurrying influx of memories, which moved him to long-forgotten habits of tenderness. In the recovery of Silas, the first step undoubtedly was the loss of his gold. The great shock it gave arrested his habit of life and opened the way for new influences. With wondrous skill, the author has indicated every step of the change resulting from his loss. 
he was forced to tell his trouble to his neighbors, whom he had long shunned. In the moment of accusing Jem, a feeling of compunction, born of the knowledge that he had once been accused wrongfully, stirred in his heart. His trouble and his evident helplessness at once placed him in kindlier relations with his neighbors. He began, in a feeble way, to expect help from some unknown source. And finally, the stirring of old impulses resulted in a poor attempt to return Dolly's goodwill. All these movements in Silas's nature preceded the coming of the child. They were all in the right direction, but would have proved abortive without the vivifying human love which Epi wakened in his heart. The manner of Epi's coming into the house of Silas Marner admirably illustrates George Eliot's habit of intimately connecting each part of her narrative with every other, so that whatever befalls occurs naturally in a series of events, all closely connected with the ordinary course of the life depicted. To this end, the author first impressed upon the reader the simple religious character of Marner's mind, and showed how fervently he had been attached to the friends of his youth. In the very act of depicting the narrow, sordid miser, she showed that his love of gold, in its origin, was only a habit of clinging, transferred from the friends who had betrayed him to the inanimate metal, and then riveted upon his soul through the necessity he felt for some kind of activity. Upon first thought, it would seem that the footsteps of the wandering little waif tottered to his fireside by the merest chance. Yet the author has made this chance seem probable by attention to the smallest details. The absence of Silas, the open door, even the reason which prevented his turning the key in the door as usual, were all small circumstances in the simplest and most natural series of events. His nearsightedness had also its part to play in a result so finely calculated that, like the events of real life, its exact turn was dependent upon many complex influences. In the very simplicity and homeliness of its details, this incident shows, as a more elaborate plot could not, the care with which George Eliot habitually prepared for each part of her narrative. Nor was she less careful or analytic in noting the results springing from the immediate contact of an affectionate, trusting child with a life so isolated and narrow as that of the miser. First, an old habit of tenderness reawakened, and his affection expended itself upon Epi for the sake of another little one, long since returned to dust. This led him, for reasons which he could not explain, to keep the child and assume the burden of her support, which act was decisive in the development of the plot. Toward the moment of this decision, everything from the beginning of the narrative tended. Had it been different, the theme chosen by the author could not have been illustrated. And after the decision, every incident to the end of the first book is seen to flow naturally from the choice made. The women of Ravelot bestowed an active sympathy upon the poor man who had undertaken, in utter ignorance of the magnitude of his task, the care of a little girl. As a result, the visits of wholesome Dolly Winthrop became a permanent and positive influence in the little household of Silas. One thing followed another. He consented to the christening, lest the child should be exposed to some unknown evil through his neglect. This brought him into connection with the church, and made him one of the community, 
attendant upon services common to all. The necessity for constant watchfulness and penetration in caring for the child stimulated mental faculties long dormant. His memory began to return. He collected herbs as of old, and little threads of human interest connected his life more and more closely with the lives of his neighbors as he traveled among them, carrying his foster child on his shoulder and delivering his finely woven webs of cloth. Slowly his mind began to travel along the future. He foresaw that in a few years the welfare of this child would depend upon many things beyond his providing, and he tried in his dull way to understand and share the life of the little village, that he might presently make it helpful to her. And during all this time, while his every effort and thought were given to fostering a waif of unknown parentage, he himself was led gently forth toward a calm and bright land by the hand of a little child. The artistic purpose in the underplot of Silas Marner serves as a kind of background or contrast to the motif of the main plot. In the story of Marner's life, the author wishes to illustrate the remedial influences of pure, simple human relations in winning the soul from a narrow and sordid existence. In the life of Godfrey Cass, she intended to emphasize the nemesis resulting from failure to fulfill the obligations belonging to marriage and fatherhood. After many years, Godfrey's slow mind perceived the connection between his own acts and their inevitable result, and he said, There's debts we can't pay like money debts by paying extra for the years that have slipped by. The purpose of making each plot supplement the other artistically guided the author in the selection of incidents and characteristics. She exercised the greatest self-restraint in the subordination of one theme to the other, excluding all irrelevant material, and thus secured the peculiar unity and artistic perfection of Silas Marner.